What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Kelly Evans, here's what is ahead. The Bulls taking charge to kick off December with records for the S&P and the NASDAQ. Are we setting up for another big month of gains, or did November's jump steal from the Santa Claus rally? We'll ask that question. Plus, betting big on beauty. Kohl's shares surging after announcing Sephora will open mini shops in hundreds of Kohl's stores. We'll speak with the CEOs of both companies about that partnership. And an inside look at just how far airlines are going to lure back corporate travelers as they scramble to cut into their cash burn. But we begin right now with today's market movers. For that, we go to Dom Chu. Melissa, you would think after the best month for the Dow since January of 87 that things would temper off just a little bit here. But no, we've got a nice green screen across the board. The Dow Industrial is up 260 points. That's off the highs of the session. We were up more than 400 points after the opening bell today. So 1% gains there, 1.25% gains, 36.67 the last trade for the S&P. And the Nasdaq reassuming that pole position, that leadership spot up 1.3% so far today, 12.357 the last trade for the composite index. One of the big themes that shaped up over the last month is the real outperformance of small cap stocks versus large caps. Look at the Russell 2000 small cap ETF, ticker IWM, 19, 20% gains there versus just 12 and a quarter percent gains for the overall S&P 500. That gap, if it starts to go even wider, could signal more economic optimism. That small cap versus large cap, one trend to watch there in the month of December. And then the stock of the day, check out what's happening with Zoom video, off 14%, just off the lows of the session so far today. This company has been hyper when it comes to growth, but that growth may be tempering now at its peak This was a $162 billion company, Melissa. It's closer to around $117 billion right now, but that still, for perspective, Melissa, makes it a hair larger than Citigroup and a hair smaller than Boeing. Back over to you. Don, thank you. Don Chu. Inflows into equity funds last month, one of the largest in years. $77 billion poured into equity funds in November. And according to ETF Trends, $510 billion moved into ETFs in 2020. That's on pace for the biggest year ever. Are we setting up for another huge month for stocks? Joining us now, Chris Davis, Chairman and Portfolio Manager at Davis Advisors, and Mark Smith, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at UBS Wealth Management. Gentlemen, great to have you both. Um, Chris, I'll I'll start off with you. In terms of these flows, what does that tell you, if anything, about where we are in the markets, particularly as we sit right at record highs here? Well, we're really in a tale of two markets. I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing that when you really recognize that five stocks have generated two-thirds of the total return of the S&P 500 this year. So you really are in an opportunity where you have this bubble sort of valuation for areas of the market, but also areas of the market that are really on sale today. And I think that difference between growth and value with the growth index up 32%, the value index down still for the year, the financial index down almost 10% for the year, got some real opportunities in this market. At the same time, you like the areas of the digital economy, and some might argue that's where the valuations are stretched the most. 
as opposed to the value side, which it sounded like you like the value side of the equation here. Well, I do, but I would also say that you've got to break out both of those categories. In the growth category, you have to separate out growth pretenders or unproven growth from the growth stalwarts. The differences between the Zoom that you mentioned earlier and the Googles. It's just night and day in terms of durability, resiliency, growth stalwarts. On the value side, you have to distinguish between what we would call resilient value, think of the financials, and then really speculative value or value traps. Think of a lot of the industries where you're really betting on the timing of the recovery mm -hmm. and hoping they can skirt the edge of bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, Mark, as we are up here with higher valuations, people are looking for value, and we have seen that sort of rotational trade take place. And Chris is making the nuance of it. And I think a very important distinction um, between types of value, types of growth, Mark. In your view, what are some of the, the things in the market that look interesting to you right now? And what are some of those value traps that you think investors should really be aware of? Well, thanks for having me on, and um, happy holidays to everybody. I think that there's a, a lot of potential in the healthcare sector right now. I, I, you know, everyone's talking about the vaccine and 90, 95% efficacy. I think that this is going to be a home run in 2021 and 2022 for these healthcare companies. Uh, Biden and his plan is going to be um, somewhat thwarted because of the Senate, and they're not going to be able to, I think, do this robust healthcare initiative that was once feared in the healthcare industry. And so I think the healthcare sector really does have a lot of uh, potential growth um, in the coming uh, year and two years. Yeah. And in terms of value traps in the market, because I think with so many investors pouring money into the markets these days, they've got to be aware of, of what might look like value, but really are just traps. Yeah, I think that right now you have to look at some of the tech stocks. You've been seeing some of the tech stocks today have huge declines. I, I think there is not as much upside as there was uh, eight months ago in the tech sector. So you really do have to, I think, at this point, peer some of your Sorry to interrupt, gentlemen. Up. We want to go to President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who are expected to name their economic team in Delaware. Let's take a listen. Uh, even if it was far from the traditional large gathering of family and friends, apart from many we loved, but uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And I know times are tough, but I want you to know that help is on the way. Last week, I announced the nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions. A first-rate team that's going to keep us safe and secure. And today, I have the pleasure, I have the pleasure of announcing key nominations and appointments for the critical economic positions in the administration. A first-rate team that's going to get us through this ongoing economic crisis and help us build the economy back, not just build it back, but build it back better than it was before. A team that's tested and experienced. It includes groundbreaking Americans who come from different backgrounds, but who share my core vision for economic relief here in the United States of America. And given a fair shot and an equal chance, there's nothing, we all believe there's nothing beyond the capacity of the American people. Let's not forget who built this country. Working class and middle class people built this country, and unions built the middle class. And from the most unequal economic and job crisis in modern history, we can build a new American economy that works for all Americans, not just some, all. We need to act now, though, and we need to work together. You know, in the weeks since winning the election, Vice President Harris and I have uh, covered meetings with uh, a number of people. 
We convene meetings with labor leaders and CEOs at the same time, mayors and governors of both political parties. There's a consensus out there that as we battle the COVID-19 disease, we have to make sure that business and workers have the tools, resources, and guidance, and the health and safety standards to be able to operate safely. The goal is simple, to keep businesses and schools open safely. And for millions of Americans who have lost their jobs or hours and have had to claim unemployment, we have to deliver them immediate relief. That includes affordable health care for millions of people who have lost it and are in danger of losing it, child care, sick leave, family leave, so workers don't have to choose between work and family, relief from rent and student loans. We need to support small businesses and entrepreneurs who form the backbone of the communities that we live in, that are teetering on the edge. You know, there's an urgent need to fund state and cities so they can, the frontline workers on those jobs can stay in the jobs. You know, the founders are pretty smart. I, I could have gotten this lesson from the future Secretary of the Treasury. You know, there's a reason why all the states and localities have to have a balanced budget, but we're allowed federally to run a deficit in order to deal with crises and emergencies as we have in the past. And we have to keep vital public services running. We have to give aid to local and state governments to make sure they can have law enforcement officers, firefighters, educators, as we did in the Recovery Act of 2009. And right now, the full Congress should come together and pass a robust package for relief to address these urgent needs. But any package passed in a lame duck session is likely to be at best just a start. My transition team is already working on what I'll put forward in the next Congress to address the multiple crises we're facing, especially our economic and COVID crises. And the team I'm announcing today will play a critical role in shaping our plan for action starting on day one and move fast to revive this economy. They're going to help me uh, help us help the country lay out my Build Back Better plan, a plan that an independent analysis from Moody's, a well-respected Wall Street firm, projected would create 18.6 million jobs. It's based on a simple proposition, reward hard work in America, not wealth. It's time to invest in infrastructure, clean energy, climate change, manufacturing, and so much more that will create millions of good-paying jobs. And it's time we address the structural inequities in our economy that this pandemic has laid bare. Economists call this current economy and recovery K-shaped. Well, like the two lines coming off of a K, some people, some people are seeing their prospects soar upward, while others are watching their economic prospects drop sharply. For those at the top, jobs have come back. Their wealth is rising. For example, luxury home sales are up over 40 percent compared to last year. But for those in the middle and the bottom, it's a downward slide. They're left figuring out how to pay the bills and put food on the table. Almost one in every six renters was behind in rent payments as of October. Let me be clear. With this team and others, we'll add in the weeks ahead that we're going to create a recovery for everybody, for all. We're going to get this economy moving again. We're going to create jobs. 
raise incomes, reduce drug prices, advance racial equity across the economy, and restore the backbone of this country, the middle class. Our message to everybody struggling right now is this. Help is on the way. My dad, you've heard me say this before, when he lost his job in Scranton when I was a kid, and we eventually moved the family not far from here, Claymont, Delaware, just in the outskirts of Wilmington. He used to say, Joey, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect, your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay, and mean it. He also used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I do expect them to understand my problems. This team understands. For Secretary of Treasury, I am really pleased to be able to nominate Janet Yellen. No one is better prepared to deal with these crises. I wish it weren't as much of a crisis, future Secretary. But she'll be the first Treasury Secretary who is also Chair of the Federal Reserve, Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve, and Chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Janet is one of the most important economic thinkers of our time. She has spent her career focused on, on employment, and the dignity of work, which is really important to me and to all of us. She understands what it means to people and their communities when they have good, decent jobs. Respect across, being looked at by their neighbors and being respected, it matters a lot to them. And respected across party lines and around the world by Main Street and Wall Street. An educator, a mentor, Above all, the daughter of a working class from a working class Brooklyn neighborhood who never forgot where she came from. Her husband, George, is pretty good, too. He's won a Nobel Prize, but he's the one that married up. <laughs> Jan will be the first woman to hold this office. We might have to uh, ask uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote the musical about the first Secretary of Treasury, Hamilton, to write another musical about the first woman Secretary of the Treasury, Yellen. So that's what I'm working on right now, Janet. <laughs> For Director of Office of Managing the Budget, I nominate Neera Tandon. You know, I've known Neera a long time. A brilliant policy mind with critical practical experience across government. She was raised by a single mom on food stamps, an immigrant from India who struggled, worked hard, and did everything she could for her daughter to live out the American dream. And Neera did just that. She understands the struggles that millions of Americans are facing. And she'll be the first woman of color from South Asia, from South Asia, excuse me, from South Asia. And, uh, and I think that uh, to lead OMB. We also have another one of those women as Vice President of the United States of America. And uh, so look, all being very serious. She, she, she'll be in charge of laying out the budget that will help us control the virus and deal with the economic crisis and build back better. But above all, she believes what I believe. A budget should reflect our values. Again, quoting my dad, for real, my dad's people would say, Joe, let me tell you what I value. And he'd look at them. He's a high school educated guy, very well read. And he'd look at me and say, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I'll tell you what you that's what you're going to do for us. As Deputy Secretary of Treasury, I nominate Wally Adierno. 
Wally is, uh, um, you know, Wally, I don't know. Uh, I tell you what, uh, Senator Warren really likes you. <laughs> she re highly recommended you, but I wasn't sure she worried I stole you as well. But uh, thank you for being willing to do this, Wally. A skilled leader and thinker on issues ranging from macroeconomics to consumer protection and from national security to international affairs. I've worked with Wally during the Great Recession. That was my excuse to the senator, saying that's why I wanted to steal you. And I saw him tackle one big job after another. Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama, Deputy Director for the National Economic Council, former Chief of Staff to Elizabeth Warren, where he helped create the Consumer Protection Bureau and uh, Financial Bureau, which has done so much good. It's designed to protect consumers and working people from unfair, deceptive, and abusive financial practices. And now Wally will be the first African-American ever to hold this post and the highest-ranking African-American in the Treasury Department's history. An immigrant from Nigeria, the son of a nurse and an elementary school principal, Wally understands everything we do is basically for the people, for families, hard-working people, to understand their struggles and, most of all, their dreams. He understands both. And I want to thank you, Wally, for being willing to do this. For chairperson of Council of Economic Advisors, I nominate, notwithstanding she was a very distinguished professor at, at Princeton. I joke, my, my children who went to Penn used to always kid about, you know. But Cecilia C.C. Rouse, one of the most distinguished economists in the country, an expert on labor, economics, and race, poverty, and education. Dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, a member of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Obama, an advisor to President Clinton at the National Economic Council. More than that, she's a proud daughter whose mom, a school psychologist, encouraged her to pursue, her, pursue economics. And her dad, one of the country's first African-American astrophysicists who dared her to dream. She's done both. If confirmed, Cece will be the first, excuse me, the fourth woman to lead the Council of National Econ of Economic Advisors and the first African-American ever to hold that post. And as CEA chair, she'll serve as a member of my cabinet as well. As a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, we also appoint Jared Bernstein, an old friend who's been with me a long time, a brilliant thinker, a quick, quick wit, with a heart as big as his head and a heart he got from his mom, an educator who raised him correctly. A social worker turned economist, Jared is one of my closest economic advisors and friend. He served as my chief economist during the vice presidency. He was there in that foxhole during the Great Recession with the economy on the brink and our country on our back. I couldn't think of anyone else who I'd want to be at my side to face the challenges ahead. Jared will be one of the leading voices of my administration on economic policy. I can always count on him to deliver straight from the shoulder, as his hero FDR used to say, straight from the shoulder. The one thing I can assure you is working people will always have a voice with Jared in this council. As a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, I appoint Heather Bousset. Heather, uh, thank you for all the help you had in the transition team. And getting me here. She's one of the foremost economists working to make a, sure we build an economy that works for all Americans. The daughter of a union family, it's no wonder she believes so deeply in the idea 
that uh, leave no one out, leave no one behind in this economy. During the campaign, I relied on our council on addressing structural inequities within the economy. And I'll do so again as president because the that's one of the central issues of our time. To this team, thank you for accepting the call to serve again. You're, uh, to your families and to your, uh, thank them for their sacrifices because it's real sacrifice. We could not do this without you. And to the American people, this team will always be there for you and your families. This is family-oriented team. We got to make sure ordinary people get a chance to do well because they've never, when given a chance, they've never, ever, ever, ever let the country down. Eleven years ago, President Obama and I entered office during the Great Recession and implemented the Recovery Act that saved us from a Great Depression. I didn't see the map of America at the time, nor did he, in terms of blue states and red states. We only saw the United States of America. We worked with everyone, for everyone, and we recovered and rebuilt together as one nation. Vice President Harris and I will do that all over again with an outstanding team. They're ready on day one. And to the United States Senate, I hope those outstanding, these outstanding nominees will receive a prompt hearing and that we will be able to uh, work across the aisle in good faith and move forward as one country. So let's begin the work to heal, to unite, to rebuild an economy for all Americans. They deserve and expect nothing less. Thank you. May God bless you. And may God protect our troops. I now turn this over to the new team, starting with our next Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. Again, Janet, thanks for accepting. Appreciate it. I think they're going to clean this off for us here. Thank you, Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect. It's my great honor to have this opportunity to serve you and the American people and to join this incredible economic team at this moment of great challenge for our country. Mr. President-elect, when you reflect on what your father taught you about how a job is much more than a paycheck, I hear my own father, who raised our family in working-class Brooklyn. When he graduated from medical school during the Great Depression, he looked for a home and a place to hang his shingle near the Brooklyn docks. Back then, Bush Terminal on the upper New York Bay was a thriving hub for manufacturing and transportation, and for the union workers whose livelihoods depended on them. Knowing they didn't have cars, my father found a home near a bus line. He started his family practice in the basement while we lived on the floors above. At the end of the day, he would talk to me, my brother, and my mom about what work meant to his patients, our friends and neighbors, especially if they lost a job 
the financial problems, the family problems, the health problems, the loss of dignity and self-worth. The value of work always stuck with me, so much so that I became an economist because I was concerned about the toll of unemployment on people, families, and communities. And I've spent my career trying to make sure people can work and achieve the dignity and self-worth that comes with it. Mr. President-elect, I know you've done the same. I saw that understanding during the last Great Recession and the Recovery Act that followed. And now we're facing historic crises again. The pandemic and economic fallout that together have caused so much damage for so many and have had a disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable among us. Lost lives, lost jobs, small businesses struggling to stay alive or closed for good. So many people struggling to put food on the table and pay bills and rent. It's an American tragedy. And it's essential that we move with urgency. Inaction will produce a self-reinforcing downturn, causing yet more devastation. And we, miss, we risk missing the obligation to address deeper structural problems, inequality, stagnant wages, especially for workers who lack a college education. Communities that have seen industry disappear with no good jobs replacing lost ones. Racial disparities in pay, job opportunities, housing, food security, and small business lending that deny wealth building to communities of color. Gender disparities that keep women out of the workforce and keep our economy from running at full force. It's a convergence of tragedies that is not only economically unsustainable, but one that betrays our commitment to giving every American an equal chance to get ahead. But I know this team will never give up that commitment. As you've said before, Mr. President-elect, out of our collective pain as a nation, we will find collective purpose to control the pandemic and build our economy back better than before to rebuild our infrastructure and create better jobs, to invest in our workforce, to advance racial equity and make sure the economic recovery includes everyone, to address the climate crisis with American ingenuity and American jobs, working together with the outstanding national security and foreign policy team you announced last week to help restore America's global leadership. And above all, we share your belief in the American dream of a society where each person with effort can rise to their potential and dream even bigger for their children. I pledge as Treasury Secretary to work every day towards rebuilding that dream for all Americans. And to the great public servants of the Treasury Department, I look forward to working with you and Wally to rebuild the public trust. 
to the American people, we will be an institution that wakes up every morning thinking about you. Your jobs, your paychecks, your struggles, your hopes, your dignity, and your limitless potential. Thank you. Quite a bit of focus there on family uh, in the announcement here of the Biden economic team as we watch them wiping down the podium uh, as Janet Yellen speaking there, addressing the president-elect, but also very much addressing uh, the American public as well, making the Mr. case that this economic team Madam is going Vice to be president about family uh, and about uh, ultimately building back this economy, as the, as the vice president said, uh, building back better. Uh, a couple of interesting things to note there. When we heard the, the former vice president and the president-elect Joe Biden talking, we got a little bit of an inkling there. Uh, maybe a, some concession to political reality when he talked about an economic relief package that could come between now and the end of the year in the so-called lame duck session. He said any economic relief package that comes in the lame duck session is likely to be just a start. Now, Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats have been pushing for a big bill uh, in that lame duck session. Biden there, perhaps uh, by my read anyway, acknowledging that that might not be possible here with the political reality uh, the way it is. And so saying that this is going to be a start, sort of a down payment politically on an economic team here. Uh, so a fascinating moment uh, as this team, which has so much experience in dealing with the last financial crisis, now prepares to deal with a financial crisis, an economic crisis that doesn't come from the financial system, that comes from a biological crisis, an entirely different crisis, but a very familiar set of figures in many ways. I'll toss it back over to you guys. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington. Um, let's, uh, let's get more on that package that President-elect Biden spoke about just moments ago. Let's go to Elon Moy, who's also in Washington, monitoring the developments here on Capitol Hill as uh, negotiations start again. Elon. Well, that's right, Melissa. This uh, bipartisan proposal that we've seen from a group of lawmakers is really just a starting point for people to get back to the table. It's a $908 billion package that includes more than half of the money coming from repurposed funding from the CARES Act. Now, the breakdown of this package includes $160 billion for state and local governments, $288 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, $45 billion for airlines and transportation, and $16 billion for the vaccine and testing and tracing. This proposal would also extend unemployment benefits through the first quarter of next year, give more money to schools, and also ensure that businesses could have some temporary liability protections. Now, this plan was put together by about 15 Republicans and Democrats from both the House and the Senate. They say that the leadership of both parties have been briefed on the plan, as well as the White House. The Democratic Senator Mark Warner said that not everybody is going to be happy with this, but that there was some good, good give and take with Republicans. Now, it is clear, though, Melissa, that there is growing demand from the incoming administration as well as from Capitol Hill for some type of additional relief that could pass alongside the government spending bill that would uh, get passed sometime next week. And we're hearing more lawmakers say that no one should leave Washington until this gets done. Back to you. Elon, I'm curious, how did you read uh, President-elect Biden's comments about a stimulus plan? I, I thought I heard that no matter what is passed during a lame duck session, if anything is passed, there is a promise of more stimulus to come, which I would think would be very, very positive for the markets. 
Yeah, I think that what we heard was him giving permission to Democrats to back away from that $2 trillion plan that they've held so fast to for so many months. We're now hearing Democrats say that they're getting behind just simple extensions of unemployment benefits. We heard we saw this package today, which draws back on some of their demands for the amount of money that state and local governments would get. So this is a way for Democrats to be able to pass something and do it quickly because there is a deadline here. Um, and that way they can then turn to what the priorities of the next administration might be. Whether or not this actually gets done, whether it's a nearly trillion dollar package or just individual measures that could get bipartisan support remains to be seen. But I think Democrats are finally acknowledging that the $2 trillion HEROES Act that they passed back in the spring is not going to see the light of day this year. I think that's a good way of putting it, Elon, permission to go with something smaller, which would increase the chances of something getting done. Uh, thank you so much, Elon. Elon Moy in Washington. Shares of coal surging 13% today after making a big bet on beauty. The department store is teaming up with Sephora in hopes of driving more store traffic amid the e-commerce boom. Lauren Thomas joins us now with all the details. Lauren. Thanks, Melissa. Well, the beauty wars really are heating up. Like you said, Kohl's announced a 10-year deal with Sephora this morning. It aims to open 200 Sephora locations within Kohl's stores by the fall of next year, ramping that up to more than 850 locations by 2023. Now, this announcement comes on the heels of Target just last month, announcing a tie-up with Ulta Beauty to open Ulta stores and more than 100 Target locations. Uh, Kohl's has also said that it plans to at least triple its sales in beauty in the coming years. Uh, joining me now to discuss this deal are Kohl's CEO Michelle Goss and the Sephora America CEO John Andre Rogot. Uh, thank you both for being here with me today. Michelle, my first question is uh, for you. Why is now the right time for Kohl's to make such a big bet in beauty? And walk us through what exactly this experience is going to look like when we visit a, a Kohl's store. Sure, Lauren. Well, it's great to see you. I would say a couple things. Um, first off, just a couple months ago, we launched our new strategy. We've had our sights set on beauty for some time. And with all the disruption that's happening in the retail industry, we've really taken a step back and asserted a new strategy to be the destination for all things active, casual, wellness, and beauty for the family. So we're going to be making certain categories like active and athleisure and beauty, of course, much bigger, and then downsizing or exiting other categories. Um, like I said, we've had our sights set on beauty for some time. Kohl's, as big as we are, we're very underrepresented in beauty, yet we serve 65 million customers, 70% which are female, and they've been telling us they want a bigger, bolder experience in beauty. So we could not be more excited but to partner with the world expert in beauty, which is Sephora. And I think combining the expansive reach that we bring, um, 1160 stores, 95%, which are off-mall, so hugely convenient, coupled with our omni-channel presence, you combine that with Sephora's expertise and their loyal customers, we know that we're going to convert a lot of our own customers as well as attract millions of new customers and younger customers into Kohl's. So this is a transformational partnership and deal, uh, certainly for Kohl's, I'd say for both companies. And then in practice, you know, how that's going to work is we are building true shopping shops inside of Kohl's. So a typical Kohl's is about 90,000 square feet. Um, the Sephora shop, which will be in prime real estate right in the front of the store, will be about 2,500 
square feet. Um, so it will house uh, many of the fantastic brands that you find at a Sephora today. We're also doing something a little bit out of the box, which is we are branding one of our doors. Most Kohl's stores have two doors. So it will be unmistakable that there is a Sephora inside of Kohl's, and you'll see that um, from a distance. So again, we could not be more excited and pleased with the announcement that we shared today. Thanks for all, all, all that additional detail. John, Andre, I wanted to toss to you as well. Um, and this, this obviously is not your first uh, time partnering with a big retailer. Back in 2006, you struck a deal with JCPenney. Uh, JCPenney has since filed for bankruptcy during the pandemic, and they're in the process of emerging. But you will be cutting ties with them, moving out of those stores, and now moving into Kohl's. So why, why did Kohl's make sense as the next partner for you? Well, Lauren, as you know, you know Sephora is the uh, number one prestige beauty retailer in America and has been for a few years now. You know, we also obviously have a very large dot-com presence. Um, and we have been delivering, you know, surprise and delight to consumers for a long time for a very unique brand assortment for our really expert beauty, uh, you know, beauty uh, advisors. Our problem is reach. You know, we... Um, have only 500 stores, and most of them are in urban centers, uh, traditional malls, and we have not been able to reach, you know, consumers in American suburbia, in the Carolinas, in Ohio, in Texas, in Florida, the way we would like it to be. And uh, the reason this deal is so great is that we are going to be able to leverage the extensive network of calls, uh, but more importantly, the fact that their location are so convenient you know, off malls, easy to park, easy to access. That is going to be a blessing for our consumers to be able to discover Sephora Beauty in an easy and convenient way right next to where they live. So for us, it's a transformative deal. We will triple the network of stores mm -hmm. in the next two or three years. We'll also be the exclusive beauty retail partner on Coles.com. As you know, Coles has done significant investments in dot-com and also last mile like bopis and curbside so we'll obviously leverage all of those investments to help sephora mm -hmm. so it's a partnership that's going to be very complementary very few of our stores overlap we are more urban they are more suburban mm -hmm. so it's a great mix and it's a big win for coast consumers and sephora consumers it's also a big win for our brand partners it's a way for them to get a much bigger reach across the u.s to a much broader consumer group. Michelle, how should investors think about how you make money from this partnership in terms of revenue sharing from the products sold, uh, in terms of cross-selling, in terms of uh, whether you're catering and serving the existing customer base that you have or actually going to be able to bring in new customers who will then buy other items within your store? Yeah, so first let's start with the beauty opportunity. I mean, this is a true partnership. We're both all in for a long-term commitment, at least 10 years, hopefully decades beyond that. And so the economic model is a shared operating profit model. But on the sales side, um, Kohl's will book the revenue, own the inventory, et cetera. But from an operating profit, we will share in that. So we're both hugely vested in each other's success, um, which is which is fantastic. And um, in terms of, you know, the long-term opportunity for Kohl's, this is a tremendous opportunity for us to acquire new customers, new younger customers. I do think it will absolutely resonate and convert our existing customers. I mentioned 65 million customers 
70% of which are, are women. Perfect. And uh, we're looking forward to converting those customers into being beauty buyers as well. But I think importantly, all these new customers we're going to bring in, we're going through a big transformation inside Kohl's as well. So we're looking forward to converting them not only into Sephora, but also into great Kohl's customers over the long term. Michelle, I wanted to ask, you know, this announcement obviously comes in the thick of the holiday season and we just got through Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Uh, you know, what are you seeing at stores? We saw there was a large decline year over year in traffic in stores on Black Friday and you know, a huge growth online as well. Uh, so how are you working through that and, and any feedback from the weekend? Yes, Lauren. So as we shared earlier in the month, um, we were really pleased how we kicked off the holiday season. Like many retailers, we did a lot of things to move some of that demand up earlier as customers were telling us that they wanted to shop early. A lot of the categories that were trending going into the holiday season continue to do well. Home, um, athletic, mm -hmm. even toys for Kohl's. And we're pleased that we're seeing lots of customers shopping us online, but also coming to our stores. Uh, we still have a lot of big days and weeks ahead of us. So, Lauren, I'll look forward to sharing those results when, we, when we're on the other side of the holiday season. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks to Cole CEO Michelle Goss and Sephora America CEO Jean-Andre Rogot for joining me this afternoon to talk about this deal. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Lauren, thank you, Lauren Thomas. And for more on Cole's big beauty bet, be sure to visit CNBC.com. Airbnb packs up and hits the road show. The future of Exxon's dividend, a vote of confidence for DoorDash and Nasdaq's big diversity push. All that and much more coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire. The Exchange will be right back. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on the markets right now. The S&P and Nasdaq both hitting record highs today. Just off of those highs, in fact, the Dow is up by a percent. The S&P up by 52 points or one and a half percent. The Nasdaq up by 1.6 percent. All 11 S&P sectors, by the way, are higher right now, led by communication services, financials and technology. OK, let's get to to rapid fire and catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. Here with their takes, Dominic Chu, Deirdre Bosa, and Bob Pisani. Welcome to Rapid Fire, guys. First up, Airbnb kicking off its roadshow as it prepares for its long-awaited IPO. The company filing an updated S1 with the SEC today, saying it expects to price between 44 and 50 bucks a share, and that would give it a valuation of up to $35 billion, topping its peak private valuation of $31 billion back in 2017. Airbnb took a big hit earlier this year at the start of the pandemic but seemed to recover when people were looking for bigger spaces outside of the city. Deidre, what are the surprises here in the S1? What are the surprises? I think just that incredible resilience, and we talked about this earlier, but that is certainly going to be sort of a buzzword surrounding the roadshow in the lead up to the IPO. But Airbnb was just hit so hard earlier this year in the depths of the pandemic. Brian Chesky, the CEO, went out. He laid off about a quarter of the staff, pulled back on some of its more ambitious projects like real estate um, and hotels. And I guess the most surprising thing would be that they were actually 
profitable for a moment this year amidst all of the challenges that they saw. Um, and the fact that they're going to be going public at a valuation could be as high as $35 billion. Um, it's really at least the valuation has become has come full circle. The business, though, still has some ways to go. So they will be making that case over the next few weeks in the lead up for that very anticipated uh, IPO. At the Lisa. same time, Bob, I would think that this is not a surprise and it will be well received by these kinds of markets that are looking to go out on the risk spectrum with uh, stocks at record highs. Well, I think Deirdre had it right. Talk about timing. Talk about the <laughs> right IPO at the right moment. This is the 2021 story. This is the reopening story. This is the perfect moment for it. If, what would have happened, Deirdre, if it would have been back in April? They, then the last round of funding was like $18 billion. <laughs> That was the low part of the market. Now they're talking about a $35 billion. Talk about timing. They always say IPOs are about timing. This is the perfect time. So 2021, the reopening story, Boy, did Airbnb catch a wave right here. I would say it's both. It's, 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 a, it's an IPO for all seasons. It's an IPO for pandemic times. It's an IPO for post-pandemic times, Dom, because people went to Airbnb. They want to rent houses. They want to be like by a lake uh, on, in a mountain or something like that and not in New York City. That probably is reflected in the $35 billion yeah. valuation that you're talking about right now. I mean, right. you, Bob talks about timing. This is a timing issue here for not just the company, but for investors who are potentially going to look at this as an investment. How much more can you say is upside that is left if you have a, a, a valuation that is now in the private markets just about doubled at the high end of its range? I'm not sure investors are going to be saying, yes, I want this IPO, but at any price, I don't know what that price is going to be, but it's certainly something when you see a red hot IPO market like this, <laughs> it has gone nowhere but up since the pandemic lows. By the way, that Renaissance IPO ETF that you showed a chart of, it said it's doubled year to date. It's tripled from the pandemic lows. That's how hot the IPO market is. And that should breed some caution right now, Melissa. All right. Next up, well, Melissa, I got I got to ask here really quickly, though. T timing, yes, but this is one of the oldest unicorns around. We've been talking about it going public for at least five years. So, yes, the timing worked out, but some would have preferred to see this company go public years ago. Mm. Next up, Exxon is facing a historic write-down of up to $20 billion in nat gas properties while also cutting spending to its lowest level in 15 years. Shares are higher today after the company said it is aiming to protect its dividend despite costing them about $15 billion a year. Exxon still down more than 40% for its worst year ever, perhaps made worse by the stock's exit from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And Bob, what is staggering is the amount of debt this company has. It's up to a 30% debt-to-capitalization ratio from 20% earlier this year. And I guess the big question here is, is that dividend? What happens to it? Yeah. So this was a company that was about big spending, big capital expenditures, and increasing the dividend every single year for years and years. And now it's transitioning to a company that's a lot more cost conscious. They're going to cut spending. They're going to cut capital expenditures. They're going to uh, sell assets off. And now they're talking about a stable dividend. So wait a minute. Big spenders, big increasing in the dividend. Cutting spending, stable dividend. The issue is the dividend. And I, I think the question here is, is enough. They're cutting the capital expenditures a lot. I think the street is betting that that may be enough so that they can cover the dividend mm -hmm. without having to raise additional debt, which you referenced there. If they can do that, the street may be perfectly satisfied with the dividend where it is right now. Certainly no more increases, but, but likely they're trying to signal unlikely to be cutting the dividend.
that acquisition, Dom, um, of XTO way back when to get on the gassy side of the business, so to speak, that's got to be one of the worst timed acquisitions in history, uh, in any mean, industry. I mean, it, it may not have been, I, I guess timing, it, it couldn't have been, it's not necessarily a bad timing question right now. The XTO Energy deal may have made sense. It just may not have made sense at the price that they paid for it. The, the natural gas explosion here in America has made it America pretty much the producer, the swing producer of natural gas all over the world right now, in addition to just about every other petrochemical you can think of. With Exxon, Bob mentioned the stable dividend. Stable dividend is, is one thing. They will be trying to grow this thing somewhat slightly over time. And when I say slightly, I mean like maybe a, a penny a share, a quarter, that sort of thing. The reason why is because Exxon and Chevron are two of the oil majors out there that have consistently grown their dividend for 25 years. It's a class of stock known as the dividend aristocrats. Mm-hmm. By the way, they're two oil majors in the U.S. They're oil majors around the world. Their counterparts, like in Europe, like Royal Dutch Shell and British Petroleum, BP, have actually changed or cut their dividends over time. Right. So, again, this is a big deal if they can maintain that big dividend. Yep. Uh, next story here, DoorDash getting its first nod from Wall Street, and it hasn't even gone public yet. D.A. Davidson says DoorDash is a category leader, still gaining market share as the pandemic helps accelerate expansion. As a result, the firm is initiating coverage with a buy rating and a price target of $93. DoorDash is expected to go public next Wednesday and priced within a range of $75 to $85 a share. Talk about perfect timing for the perfect kind of stock, Deidre. <laughs> Again, right, we just talked about Airbnb, also perfect timing, but in a very, very different way. We know that the pandemic has been good in terms of this digital acceleration, changing habits, more people are ordering food, and DoorDash will be a really interesting one. This isn't an entirely new concept, of course. We have Uber, Grubhub that are public companies that are in the food delivery space, but what is remarkable, um, and, you know, Melissa, you asked me what was the most surprising thing about the Airbnb S1. The most surprising thing about the DoorDash S1 was also the fact that it showed profitability. Even more surprising, the fact that Uber is so far away from profitability in their food delivery business. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable what Tony Hsu, the CEO, has been able to grow their market share to 50% while the other guys are lagging somewhere in the 20s. And they've really come up from behind by going into the smaller suburban markets. That has been a really good strategy and certainly one uh, that D.A. Davidson pointed to in that note and why they make the bull case. Yes. Ahead, Can I Bob. be a Debbie Downer on this? Of course. If 2021 <laughs> is, is the Airbnb story because it's the reopening story, isn't DoorDash the 2020 story? I mean, isn't this a story that would have had a lot of resonance uh, nine or ten months ago? I know about all the competition, but uh, am I looking at this wrong, Deirdre? I mean, this company would have done a lot better, wouldn't it, had it gone public a year ago versus now? It seems like this is a 2020 story. A year ago, a we had no story. idea that we'd be ordering everything in our lives online, including burritos. <laughs> <laughs> and salads, Bob. We just had no idea. So isn't it the perfect it time? It would have gone through the roof. Time now. It's a good question. A year ago. Sustainability. There's that, it's the sustainability that Bob's pointing to that a lot yeah. of investors are going to be asking about. Can they keep up this growth? All right. Next up here, NASDAQ is asking the SEC's permission to require the companies that are listed on its exchange to disclose their board's diversity. Under the proposal, companies will be required to have at least two diverse board members, one woman and one person who identifies as either an underrepresented minority or LGBTQ. If the company does not meet these standards, it will have to publicly explain why it isn't meeting them. NASDAQ CEO Dina Friedman joined Squawk Box this morning with what went into this decision. 
we think it'll give investors more confidence, and therefore, as an exchange, we should play a role here. Um, but I also would say that at the end of the day, it is a matter of companies making their own decisions and, and explaining and disclosing to investors their decisions, and then letting investors um, determine what they want to do on the back of that, those decisions. About time, huh, Don? I mean, Goldman Sachs is saying that they're not going to take companies public unless they have some kind of board diversity quotient in play here. With the exchange doing, exchanges doing it, it takes it to a whole new level. And this is, Melissa, a very big kind of move here by this whole thematic uh, environmental sustainability governance type regime that we're talking about and have been for months, if not years now. This takes it to a whole new level. If companies cannot really access public markets in as efficient a way as possible without being board diverse, that puts a huge hurdle for some of these companies. It may be the active move needed to kind of open up these boards and make them a little bit more diverse. But, but Melissa, it, it comes down to what Adina Friedman yeah. said. This is about a choice that companies are going to make. Choices that they make actively could open up more doors for them down the line. And the exchanges doing it is a very big key here. Quick, Bob. This is only the start of it. Where yeah. do you see the questions on the environment that go forward? You're going to see a lot of questions about climate change in the exact same vein. Oh, really? Do you think the SEC, does action. the SEC give the green light for oh, yeah. climate change? Okay. They're going to start saying... Well, not on the regulations. What are you? How are you thinking about climate change? That's how you, you ask questions, and it makes the people on the other side say, "Huh, we should be doing something about this. We should have a position." That's how you get some of action on this. I'm not saying on either side, but you're going to see this happening. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it, Dominic Chu, Deidre Bosa, and Bob Pisani. All right, to recover from the pandemic, airlines need business travelers to fly again. But with COVID cases surging, how do you convince corporations that it is safe? Phil Lebeau joins us now with more. Phil. Melissa, you give them a tour. That's how you convince corporate travel managers that it's safe to put their employees back on the road again. Yesterday, we were at Boston Logan Airport as Delta was giving a tour to Takata and specifically to the woman in charge of corporate travel for Takata, which is a Japanese pharmaceutical firm. When we were there, we saw exactly what they do for all of their corporate travel managers. They take them down the jetway, onto the plane, show them how they're spraying down the planes, wiping down the planes, promoting social distancing. They've given 450 of these tours to 850 corporate clients, and they believe this is the key to winning back corporate travelers. We've actually found that these airport tours have been a great way to showcase what we're doing and bring people out here and see it firsthand. And that really builds that confidence and shows them that there's actually a lot of things being done versus seeing an infographic or just seeing it in writing. Well, here's something in writing that is not good news for the airlines. The current level of corporate travel down 85% compared to last year. According to Car Trawler and a new study they did, they believe that post-pandemic it'll be down 36%. But the trips that are lost to technology, 19 to 36%, they say those aren't coming back. And that's why many people, as you take a look at the uh, shares of Delta, many people believe it's going to take two to four years even Ed Bastian at Delta has said it's going to take a while for that corporate travel to come back, Melissa. Yeah, it seems to me, Phil, that they would first have to return to the office before they return to the airplane. But we shall see, as they say. Phil, thank you. Yep. Phil LeBeau you in bet. Chicago. All right, that does it for the exchange. But stick around for Power Lunch. The CDC will vote on the rollout of COVID vaccines later this afternoon. We'll have a look at who could be first in line to get them and why. I'll join John Fort right after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.